The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who had belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Thank you, Abby, and good morning, Cross Point Church. My name is Rob Fraser, and I've never been here before, but so many people have been sick. I actually work at the smog place next door. They said, hey, maybe somebody over there can preach. Um, no, I'm one of the associate pastors here, and we are thrilled to have you here this morning. One thing about me is that I love to travel and love to go to national parks. Zion is probably our favorite. And so we've been there three, four times in the last few years. And it's been such a blast to take the kids to go. You've got to make that choice. You've got to get over there. There's an amazing hike called the Narrows where this river goes for miles and miles. And it's flanked by these two huge cliffs, like thousands of feet up in the air. It's just nothing like it. One of the hikes that you can do at Zion is called Angel's Landing. And Angel's Landing, again, is this hike that requires you to take all these switchbacks that take a few hours, finally get up to this high, high place, and then you notice at that point that there's the end. Over there, there's Angel's Landing. And so finally, when your kid is old enough and you have confidence in her abilities not to fall, you traverse this very narrow path and you hold on to a chain at certain points because it's so steep and pretty dangerous and you finally make it after a while to this amazing spot right here there's a picture of it nope that's not it there we go and you get to stand there and look over this incredible valley and it's just such a gift to be able to see that um, I don't do that many dangerous things I wouldn't call myself somebody who lives in peril uh, I mountain bike but I don't go that fast uh, I jump off rocks, but usually into water. And that's the other picture I have up there. That's Crater Lake National Park. And if you go in the summertime, late summer, don't go in June, because we've been there in the snow in June. But there's one trail that you can take, and there's one swimmer's entrance into the lake. And you can jump off this rock right there. And it, I know it looks like I'm cliff diving off Acapulco, but it's like 15 feet. It's not crazy. Uh, so I guess the only dangerous things I do is when I get into national parks, I guess I go a little bit crazy. Uh, but I'm definitely no James Bond. I'm not an international spy living on the edge of my seat. I don't chase villains. You know, these guys that have the facial scarring and slurred speech and they laugh maniacally. And because of some kind of disturbing event in middle school, they have never recovered and they decide that they're going to take on the rest of the world and try to destroy the world. Um, I don't have a car that the headlights retract and the guns come out and, you know, shoot people when necessary. I, I mean, I listen to, to uh, NPR and watch PBS, you know. Um, I was a PTA secretary for a few years. This is not super exciting stuff. I'm not somebody who lives dangerously. 
Now, most of us who follow Jesus probably don't seem to live in the face of danger either. I know some of you um, have served in the military, and yes, absolutely, you have faced danger, or law enforcement, or think about things like uh, natural disasters. Even yesterday, there was an underwater volcano that went off, and we were looking for a tsunami. Things like earthquakes, tornadoes, or maybe you like to ride dirt bikes or you belong to an MMA gym. Okay, you face a little bit more danger than the average person. But few people of us are like King David, who says in Psalm 37, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose ways are upright. David was a guy as a king, as a warrior, who did face danger, and he risked his life numerous times in war. But you and I face a different kind of danger. Peter says it this way, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Or Paul says this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, many people in society will scoff at this. Like, the devil, ah, that's not real, that's overrated. But as followers of Jesus, how else do you explain to others things like this? Human trafficking. Millions of refugees who have been displaced because of people in their government that want to take over and do anything that they want to so that they can reach power. How do you explain things like child abuse? You and I live in a dark world. Satan is real. So how is it that you and I should react? How should we respond to danger? Well, we've been unpacking the book of Acts for quite a while now, and today we're looking at chapter 12. Now, the book of Acts basically is the story of what happens. Jesus ascends back to heaven after his ministry, after his death and resurrection, and we see the beginnings of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is basically what happens in the book of Acts. So last week we looked at chapter 11, and this week we were supposed to look at the second part of chapter 11, uh, but now we're going to do that next week. So this week we're going to do chapter 12, and then in two weeks you're going to do chapter 12 as well. And basically the short on that is uh, COVID. <laughs> but don't worry, today's lesson really does is not dependent on things ahead of time. You're going to know just uh, what's going on without having to know what was going on before. If you brought a Bible with you, would you please open it up to the book of Acts? chapter 12. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you, and if you grab one of these, we're looking at page 916. Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. You might recognize that name, Herod. Well, there's a few Herods, the one that you probably know about is, is the guy that was present in the Christmas story who sought an audience with the Magi, the wise men, and said, hey, uh, tell me about this uh, Messiah. Tell me about this, this baby that's being born because I want to worship this baby too. 
which is a total lie, and we know that that uh, led to him slaughtering many, many innocent young boys. This is his son, this is his grandson. Herod Agrippa the first is somebody who loved to party, and he wasted all sorts of money. He was involved in all sorts of family drama. I mean, it was a very unstable time uh, politically. So he had been somebody who was in Rome and back out of Rome and back in Rome. And then even the emperor threw him in jail for a while. But when that emperor died, then the next emperor, uh, Caligula, came into power. He pulled him out of jail. And because they were acquaintances, because they knew each other, this new emperor gave Herod Agrippa a little bit of land in which to rule over. And over time, that land really did begin to expand. And because he was ethnically Jewish through his grandmother, he was able to connect with many of the people that lived in that area, his Jewish subjects. And he was given the title king, which really didn't mean anything. He was essentially a puppet with very little power. I uh, advised a student council in elementary school for a few years, and student council comes in, they want to make big changes. They want vending machines, they want five recesses a day, and on and on. And you know what it comes down to? No, they, they don't have that much power. <laughs> You're not going to get those five recesses. So Herod Agrippa had very little power. Uh, he really had to respond to the emperor. And so basically what he did in order to stay into power, he had to keep the confidence of the people. He had to keep the approval of the, of the people. And so the people did like him because he was Jewish and he did make these temple appearances. But in terms of somebody who was seeking God to obey God and follow God's will for his life, absolutely not. This is somebody who just used his platform to gain power. And we find out in this first verse that he begins to persecute the church. And this literally means to harm physically the people. Verse 2 says, he had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. A few chapters beforehand, Acts chapter 7, we find out the first Christian, Stephen, is killed for his faith. And at that point, this mass persecution begins against the church, against Christians. And so we find out today that that includes James, who was one of the 12 disciples. And not just one of the 12, but one of the closest three disciples. One of Jesus' three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. James and John being brothers. These three were invited by Jesus and got to witness the transfiguration. And they were also invited to come pray in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus is arrested. So one of Jesus' 12 disciples is killed for his faith. What a huge loss for the church. Verse 3, when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for a public trial after the Passover. Herod has little regard for human life. Whatever it takes for him to maintain his power, kill this guy, kill that guy, no big deal. And so when he sees 
the response at James being killed, wow, the wheels start turning. Wow, these people notice my power. I have this idea. If I arrest Peter and if I put him on trial, what a spectacle that's going to be. Just imagine that, hundreds of people, no, thousands of people out here in the courtyard and they'll see me sitting up in a place of power and this helpless man right here who's, you know, going to get a fair trial in front of the people and they will see that I make a decision that pleases them. This is going to be good. These people are going to love me. This is a guy who rules in the same way that a, that a sailboat is directed by the wind. The wind is blowing that way. All right, set sails for that course over there. Whatever it takes for me to stay in power. This is his way to connect with his crowd. Verse five. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. What chance does he have to live? Peter's thinking, this is it. I'm done. James has just been beheaded, and now I'm in prison. I'm done. Sixteen soldiers have been assigned to him. Four at a time get to watch him throughout the night. There's no way he's going to escape. Death is imminent. Meanwhile, the church completely desperate, completely without any visible power under Herod, gathers together and prays. They pray hard. They pray strenuously, fervently, constantly. God, save Peter. Save him. It's at this point where we're going to end this story, and you're going to have to come back in a couple weeks, because remember, next week is chapter 11. <laughs> You're going to have to come back in a couple weeks to find out what happens. But spoiler alert, if you don't know, Peter lives. There's a miraculous escape from this prison that if you want, go ahead and read it later. But God responds to the prayers of the church and Peter lives. So you and I do not live in first century Palestine. And you, do not, you and I do not live under the power of somebody like Herod Agrippa I. But we do face evil. The devil is alive and active. John says it this way, God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Satan is active, and he even uses people. How else do you explain something like this, where at an elementary school, kids are gunned down in the horror that their parents, family members, live through and still do? And not too much later, there's a huge push in saying, nah, it didn't happen. It was a setup. It was fake. It, it's not real. And to have to relive that of people thinking that your pain is fake. Satan is alive and active. N.T. Wright, the scholar, says, when we lose sight of evil forces at work in the world, we may become overly confident in our own abilities to control certain situations or naively assume we are strong enough to face 
any battle. If your life is anything like mine, there is noise everywhere. I wake up to the alarm. I carry this thing around with me all day long. I can entertain myself listening to stuff, watching stuff. I, I can watch TV in the car if I wanted to. And, you know, way back in my day, my sister and I had to argue in the back of the car about who got to share the battery-powered Walkman. But we face noise all day long. I mean, can you go to a restaurant anymore that doesn't have TVs? And I love to watch the game, but there's no silence anywhere. It is a dark, dark world. And the early church understood this. And what they did is model for us today what you and I need to do. When we are in danger, we need to pray hard because there are Herods everywhere. My default in some situations is fear, is panic, is to see my lack of control and want to do something about it. And so in the most desperate moments, you will find me on my knees. God, help me. But too often it's an afterthought because I try to take things under my own control. Richard Foster says, prayer is the deepest and highest work of the human life. And 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to pray without stopping. Pray continually, which makes sense. With all the things that we face in society and all the evils, you know what? I really need to be constantly in prayer. But for me, praying continually, praying without ceasing, that's more of an aspiration. It's not something that comes naturally. There's so much that I have to do but want to get there. And so all of us this morning who are followers of Jesus fit somewhere on this continuum where we are praying continually or just this once in a while sporadic, help me Jesus kind of prayer. We're somewhere along that line. Mark Batterson is the founder of National Community Church in Washington, D.C. Their church has a fascinating story and he's written a few books one of them about prayer. And he says this, sometimes you gotta get out of your own routine so that God will speak to you in a non-routine way. So what I wanna do this morning is a little more informational. I wanna offer to you a framework, the three R's of deepening your prayer life. This is not a guilt trip. This is not me pointing and saying, you should, you should, you should. This is an invitation you want to spend more time with God? You want to grow closer to God? Do you want to deal more with the realities of evil that we face? Join me in this prayer. So the three words that I'm going to offer you, I'll start with the letter R. The first one is reflect. Reflect. I have a childhood friend uh, from Ventura County that we've known each other a long, long time. First grade, kindergarten, something like that. And he and his wife actually live uh, near San Diego, so it's been great in the last couple of years to reconnect with them uh, and to spend some time with them. And Dave and Julie are amazing, amazing people. Super gifted, super kind people. 
Julie has this amazing ability to make you feel super welcomed and super important. Do you have, like me, a couple people in your life that are amazing conversationalists? Julie is one of those people that when you leave their house after a few hours, you feel so validated and so important because she has spent the entire time asking you, okay, tell me more. What about this? What about this? And it's these constant questions where she's completely probing and wanting to know what is going on in your life. She deeply cares about what's going on. Her 50th birthday last summer was a testimony to that, where in the company of complete strangers to us, everybody validated, yeah, Julie, she does this and this and that. What a testimony. Julie listens when you speak. And the first component for us is to listen to God. And our tendency when we go to prayer is, all right, let's pray. Here's everything that's going wrong. These are all the things that got to get fixed. But the invitation first is for us to listen, to reflect. We want the input from God. So the first component of that prayer is to set some time alone right away and allow the Holy Spirit to go to work at you. N.T. Wright says, evil is typically cunning and sly rather than flamboyant and obvious, which is why it is vital to remain vigilant in prayer. Because of all the noise around us, because we get so distracted we may not have that opportunity or take that opportunity to filter through what is really going on. Let's say you work at an office and there's a significant rift between a boss and an employee. And it's causing this significant problem in the office so people are taking sides or people are shying away and not wanting to engage in conversation. Our tendency is like, well, he's just a hothead. Or she just takes things too seriously. When in fact, maybe Satan's just going to town. Maybe Satan sees that opportunity to divide a group of people. In that time of listening, we allow the Holy Spirit to make us aware of the Herods that are going after us in our life. It is also an opportunity for us to become aware of the Herods inside our own life. James and John that I already talked about, three, two of Jesus' closest three friends. There's a story in Mark where they come up to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, this has been amazing, this run that we've had. It's been a few years. But now, hear, hear, hear me out, Jesus. When you finally get to that place, when we arrive at that kingdom that you've been talking about, when we're all in power, uh, don't forget us right? We've been with you. We want to sit at your right. We want to sit at your left. And we want that place of glory because we have earned it. Wow, even Peter, even James and John make that mistake. And because my actions are selfish, and because my actions are often greedy, I have to ask the Holy Spirit. I don't want to hear it, but okay, I know I need to hear it. Where have I misused power in the last week? And one of the things for this 
component of prayer is that you and I need to carve space out. We need to set out, set aside time and space to listen. And I get it. It is not easy. If you have little ones at home, if you have boxes of diapers, this is likely an impossibility. <laughs> Where there is no such thing as a moment of silence. But this is, a, this is grace that I'm offering. This is not judgment. This is me saying, hey, do what you can in the car. Close a closet door before everybody wakes up, after they go to school, lunch break, whatever it is, carve out some space to listen. Bring a journal, bring a pen, and start writing things down. It doesn't have to be perfect. This is what I hear. If you know anything about church history, you know that there were people that have lived their entire lives in this relationship of listening to God. They're called the mystics. I'm talking hours, days, weeks, months, years of living in silence. It is wild. And their lives weren't perfect, but they learned how to become attuned to God. So our first R is reflect. Our second R is request. Philippians 4 says, in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. All right, so this is your opportunity. Let God have it. God, here's what I need for life to go better. Mr. Wright hasn't showed up. He needs to come to the doorstep really quickly. My finances could use a little bit of a boost. My dream job, eh, I'm not anywhere near there. Oh, and my team needs a new quarterback. He's terrible. There's no chance we're going to the playoffs with this guy. You're going to find out that the more time that you spend in prayer, the closer you come to God. Mark Batterson says that sometimes God maneuvers us so that the only hope and answer is him. God uses that time that we spend with him to draw us closer to him. Richard Foster says it this way, prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. And with persistence, it aligns us with God's thoughts and will. And if you develop this practice of listening to God and spending time with God, here's what you're going to notice. Your prayers are going to start to morph. And you're going to find yourself doing these crazy things like praying for that neighbor down your street who looks so sad. And praying for those missionaries at the church. And praying for things like poverty and justice. Reflect. Request. And the third R is release. So if you're a follower of Jesus, here's something that you probably know. You know that God is all-powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. You know that God loves us deeply. He went to the cross for us. We know that he has prepared a place for us in heaven. But we also know this, that Satan and sin wreak havoc. We also know that God's ways are different than our ways, and he doesn't do it the way that we think he should do it. And because of that, things don't go as planned. And our prayers seem to go unanswered. And it's something that we wrestle with. 
why was James killed? Why not Peter? Why did Peter get to escape at that point? Did God like one of them more than the other one? Was one of them in sin? Did the church not pray for James? Questions that we don't, may never get answered. Last weekend, there's a terrible story of somebody in Central California that lost his life in a skiing accident. He was a paramedic firefighter. He's only 33 years old. And the only reason I know that is because I'm doing a wedding um, for a couple that lived there and he was together with this guy and he was supposed to be a groomsman in this, in this wedding I'm doing in May. And it's just devastating that their close, close friend is gone. This guy that saved people's lives. Why him? And I hope to get up there in a few weeks and talk with them. But, but if I do, I don't know what to say. Just to tell them they're loved. I performed a funeral a few years back for a boy who spent most of his six years of his life in a hospital. Why? Why him? Unanswered prayers, things like, what's going on with my marriage? my career, my job, my kids, my health. And I can tell you, after spending years in seminary and many, many years in ministry, 20 plus, my best answer is, I don't know. And it's not a great answer. Sometimes God says no, but you'll understand someday. Maybe not this side of eternity. Here's kind of an analogy that I like to think of. If you're a sled dog in a race and you're one in the back in the pack, you can't see everything. You can see dogs ahead of you, you can see a little bit of snow, but that's about it. You hear the master calling and you have to trust that you're going in the right direction to win that race. You and I have a linear way of thinking We do not think from 30,000 feet. We do not think outside of time. And we worship a God who is operating outside of time. We have a limited experience. Remember when James and John asked Jesus, hey Jesus, can we take that special place next to you? Jesus is like, well, yep. But it's not what you think it is. You are gonna drink the cup that I drank. For James, that was losing his life. For John, that was being exiled. Sometimes says God says no, but not quite yet. Sometimes God says no because he has something better in mind. Mark Batterson, who started National Community Church, tells the story of praying and praying and praying that God would give them a church office they met in public settings for so many years. And it wasn't until their third choice of like, okay, we'll take this place right here, even though it was adjacent to a shut down crack house, that God used that small office and they were able to buy the house next door when it was abandoned 
turn that into this amazing coffee place about a mile or so from Capitol Hill. And amazing things have occurred in that location. Something that they couldn't foresee. To release means to request and then to back up and to trust God. Our oldest drove from Sacramento to LA or from here to Sacramento and back this past week. She doesn't have a lot of experience driving, (laughs) but we knew that we had trained her enough that we had prepared her for that, that we were gonna step back. And so we entrusted that training and we let her go. And then every five minutes, looked on our phone to see where she was. <laughs> she got to, she's kind of taking this gap year and she spent a few months in Europe. And about six weeks she spent on her own going from hostel to hostel. And there was one day where her mom and I were in full panic mode because unbeknownst to us, her phone stopped working. There was something wrong with the signal, with the company. And she was not at the hotel that she says that she was supposed to be at. And when we called that hotel and they tried to ring her room, nothing. Six in the morning, her time. I tell you what, you may have little ones and we panic all throughout our life about what's going on with them. Will they survive in the crib? Will they survive in the womb? Are they gonna survive elementary school? Our worries just morph. So for a few hours, complete desperation. God, where is she? Nothing that we could do. Release. Some things you and I are not gonna know, but our job is to pray hard because there's Herod's everywhere. Now, a little follow-up on Herod. You can fast forward to the end of chapter 12 in the book of Acts. Sometimes we do get to see what happens. Sometimes we do get to see a little bit of justice. When you read the end of chapter 12, you find out that Herod is off um, in another part of his empire and he is talking with these people in which he has conflict and some of them start to praise him and say, you are such a great leader. You're like a God. And because he didn't defer that praise to God, He was killed on the spot. Eaten by worms. Oof. Okay, now that Herod is out of the way. But you and I face so many other Herods. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray hard. Would you close your eyes? I want to try for us to model what I'm asking you to try this coming week. The first part of it may be the hardest part. This is the reflection. What's going on in life the past 24 hours? Holy Spirit, the last seven days, 
reveal to me where you are present in my life. Did I miss somebody? Did I miss something? God, show me where you were faithful to me. Something that might help you is to go to an event in your mind in the past week where you were broken or you stepped into something that was broken. You came across somebody hurting. And if you've got that place, that photograph, that moment in your mind, you can envision Jesus standing there right next to you. What is he telling you? God, right now, this isn't going right in life. Where are you? How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. We're gonna continue to the next section of our prayer. I'm gonna invite the band up. And as we respond to God's prompting, we're gonna do that through song. You can also go to the back of the building. We've got a prayer team that would love to pray with you. And we have communion stations in each of the four corners of the room as well, in which you can remember that ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for you because of his love for you. And now, God, we request. 
in our church, Lord, right now, in our community, so many people are sick. Some even fighting for their lives right now. We lift them up, God. My family right now, it's not, it's not going the way it's supposed to. My grandkids, cousins, kids, my spouse. Here's what we need. For people I work with, for those around me, And also for me, God, this is what I need. But ultimately, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done. And this leads us into releasing. And still with your eyes closed, maybe it helps you to visualize it this way. Just clench your fist and think about what you are holding on to so tightly. This is what I'm trying to control. This is this thing that is not going the way that it's supposed to right now. And I have just told you, God, what needs to happen. But because we trust you, because we know that you love us, because we know that you see things so differently than we do, we're gonna slowly open that fist to a hand that's open and releasing to you, God, that need. You are Lord. My life is yours. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.